Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. worship team for creating that space and leading us into the presence and uh, we'll finish our time today with receiving the gift of the Lord's Supper of communion of Eucharist all mean the same thing um, we're we're in a series right now at River City that I think I at least find personally to be quite important for us as a community we're calling it wide awake and um, this idea of becoming awakened this is really kind of coming out of resurrection Sunday out of Easter Sunday this idea of seeing in a new kind of a way, of being awakened to things in a way that you weren't before, is one of the primary uh, themes of transformation in the Bible. Uh, we could point to so many places. I just think of a couple offhand that uh, John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. That there's some kind of a spiritual transformation. There's certain things we can see without or there's an inhibition of things we can see without the presence of God, and that the Spirit of God allows us to see things um, through this rebirth, the spiritual transformation process. I think of the Apostle Paul, who used to go by the name Saul, and when the Lord reveals himself to Saul, um, Saul is blinded with these, with these scales on his eyes, and it's this kind of metaphor of the blindness that his, even in his religious zeal, there was so much he was not seeing correctly, and through the healing touch of community, which is Oftentimes where sight comes, it's through the Spirit of God, but it happens in the context of community, his scales come off. Um, or one more comes to mind, Acts chapter 10. God, there's still a lot of blindness that's been inhibiting him. God, and what he realizes in that moment is that despite his love and his passion for God, there's still a lot of blindness that's been inhibiting him, that he was not awake to the way that the gospel is for all people and for the way his own ethnocentrism was playing a part in how he was proclaiming the gospel. And there's this awakening that happens. And so we're looking at this idea of awakening. We're, we're, we're locking in on one part in particular, and just what I'm saying here in the introduction could almost be its own sermon, but the, the, these are important ideas. Um, one of the primary things that those who are committed to Jesus Christ need to awaken to, uh, we talked about this a lot in our Genesis series, one of the primary things is this spiritual battle that's happening between God and evil, between goodness and evil, between light and dark, between God and the evil one that um, it's, John summarizes it quite well in chapter 10, verse 10, when he says that the intents of God, the intents of Jesus Christ, is to bring abundance, to bring life, to bring fullness. That is where God has come to bring, is bring fullness. But it's always attached to this warning. There's an evil one. There's an evil one whose intent is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so one of the questions that those who are following Jesus in every generation have to ask is, what is God up to in this day and age as God tries to reveal himself to all and call people to himself to, to grace and mercy and salvation? And how is the evil one at work? And so we're, we're taking a deep dive into a very heavy subject matter. And we're trying to say that in our times, in the times that we live in, there's a social construct of race that is one of the primary tools of how the evil one works in our society. And that's a mouthful, especially if this is kind of a newer idea. Um, but we'll call it, it's a social construct. There's all this kind of theory we could say around that. But the bottom line is that it's not created by God. It's created by humankind. 
that differences in humanity have always been around. That's part of who God is. There have been different tribes, different nations, different ethnicities, different languages. That's very much something to celebrate, something very much that's part of God's design. That's different than the social construct of race that we live in. We, I have to summarize in one minute what we spent one whole week on, but in the first week, we talked about how at the center of this social construct of race is a contest between a truth and a lie that the truth is captured in this idea, in the biblical idea of the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that every human being is created in the image of God, that every human being is inherently and infinitely valuable and worthy and meaningful because they're created in the image of God, but that in the history of our country, and this is where it starts to get heavy, um, that there is a, there is, there's this narrative of racial difference that we created, namely that to justify some of the ways that we colonized, some of the ways we instituted slavery, some of the ways that we enforced immigration policies, that we created this narrative that says, you know, that there's a certain inherent value that comes with whiteness and that there's an inherent less than that comes with non-whiteness and that we have suffered under the effects of this narrative of racial difference, this lie that attacked the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And uh, we're building on that. I kind of go through that. Some of you have missed the beginning. Some of you are new to River City. Some of you are friends and family. I realize you're stepping into kind of a heavy conversation. I want to acknowledge that, but we feel like it's important biblically. We certainly feel it's important for our community. This series, we're trying to develop some common language, some common theology for how to understand the social construct that we live in, what it means to really live deeply from the blessing of God and to confront this evil construct. And I would say there's nothing good about the social construct of race we've created. Again, I'm making a distinction. There's always been national differences, ethnic differences, language differences. That's to be celebrated. But the construct of race we have created, the way that we interact with race now, there's nothing good about it. It is, I don't know how else to say it, it is a demonic evil system. And it's important that we can see that and see the ways that it's a direct threat to the person of Jesus and the work of God and how it is that we can join in Jesus as he looks to deconstruct that and replace it with a kingdom-oriented view. How about that for a little bit of an introduction going to the text? Y'all with me so far? A little, uh, little bit of light conversation going into this. So, all right, with that, let us read the passage. We are going to um, go to a passage that, for those who are familiar with River City, you know this is a special passage here. Um, if you're not, it should hopefully become a special passage to you. Um, we've talked many times about how this should uh, inform how we think of Christianity. So it may, may not be unfamiliar in that sense, but we've never used it, I don't think, to kind of look as a way to understand the system, the construct of race that we have in our country. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 through the beginning of chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, your electronic devices, or whatever, come join us with Matthew 3 and 4. We're going to stand together for a reading of this word, so stand with me if you will. And this is the only slide I'm going to have, just so you know. All right, this is the famous baptism of Jesus, according to the Matthew account. And then in every account, the baptism of Jesus immediately goes into the temptation with the devil. We're going to read them in conjunction today. Oftentimes, they're taught separately, but we're going to read them in conjunction because it's really a part A and part B of the same experience. So we'll start with the baptism of Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And here's this beautiful image of the baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, that same Spirit who had just affirmed him, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, I love this passage so, 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 so much. We're going to, in a minute, pivot to kind of looking at how it can help us understand the mess of the social construct of race we're in. But let's draw kind of a couple of theological implications from it. Um, uh, One of the reasons I think this passage is so important, at least for me, this is one of the best, clear descriptions of what the gospel is what the good news of Christianity is, this, this experience that Jesus has where before he's ever done anything, before he's ever proved himself, before he's ever accomplished anything, he comes under the blessing of the Father and hears these words, this is my son, and if you're a woman, this is my daughter, that this is the blessing that, we are, that we're created for and that we need to return to despite our sin, that we come back into this blessing and we, we let these words come in on us, this is my daughter, this is my son, who I love. You are my beloved. You are the blessed one. I'm pleased with you. This is is home. This is what our hearts long for. And because of sin, we have amnesia, or we forget, or we walk away from it, or we have trouble internalizing it, um, or we're not willing to internalize it. But this is the whole human story in so many levels, is trying to deal with that emptiness that we have inside and that search for that blessing to come to the point where we realize it's only through the Father that we get that blessing. And so I really believe from a spiritual transformation standpoint, I think so much of what our entire lives will be is trying to untangle ourselves from the areas we've looked for that blessing and then trying to step deeply into it to have this same experience where the Spirit of God, this is where we'll end when we come back. We start here, we end here when we go into the Lord's Supper, where that Spirit of God comes. And I like it in Matthew 3, it says, the Spirit alighted on him. Right? When you have these moments, and none of us live here all the time, uh, but when you have these moments with the Spirit where you're just really aware of the way that God loves you, of the pleasure and delight that God has in you, that's what it feels like. It feels like something's lit up inside of you. It feels like something starts on the inside and emanates outside of you. And only God can do that. Only God does that. It's when we're in line with that blessing that we're most alive, that we're in tune with how God has created us and where Jesus Christ is trying to bring us back to. I think it summarizes the very heart and core of the gospel. I'm adding chapter 4 because I think this also, if you looked at it from a high perspective, I think this also summarizes how the devil works. All right? In fact, it uses the word, there's different words, or Satan, there's different kind of names given. Here it's called the devil. Um, uh, the word devil literally means liar. Diabolos, that means liar or deceiver. And so when it says the devil kind of came to duel with Jesus, we know right up front that there's going to be these lies being thrown at Jesus. 
and this is significant to understand because evil can kind of appear in many different forms, but really at the core of evil, at the core of the devil, there's no new message, there's no new material. It's lies, lies, lies. Like what darkness does, darkness makes lies seem real. It makes the lies of not feeling like you're worthy, that you're valuable, that life is worth living. It, makes, it creates these stories that misinterpret what's really happening. That's what evil does. It tries to press in these lies. And we see this in the temptation of Jesus Christ. And though there's merit in looking at each temptation individually, each one's got kind of its own kind of feel to it, I want us to just, for the purposes of this, look at it from a very macro perspective. When you flip through those pages and, and watch how the devil tempts Jesus, um, th- the same word is at the beginning of the temptations. Uh, the devil starts by saying to Jesus, if, that's the most important word in chapter 4, if, if you are the Son of God, then, dot, 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 turn this bread into stone, jump from this, the top of this building. But the sequence of this is so significant. This is human life right here. This is the whole story, really. I mean, the, the, the sequence of these two shows the battle we're in. There's the desire of God that we would live from this deep blessing. There's this desire from God that we would be united with God through Jesus Christ, through faith, and that we would live in this lit-up place that we trust that we are God's beloved, that God delights in us, that God is pleased in us. This is God's intention. This is where we started, and this is what God is always trying to bring us back home to. And even as that's happening real time, there is an evil one. There is a devil. There is a liar who tries to challenge that. The minute, and this will be your life, the minute you feel it, that you feel alive because of that blessing of it, the minute you feel it, you can trust that something will immediately challenge it and say, oh, yeah, is that really true? Is that really true? If you really are, if that really true, then what about this? And why did this happen? If that was really true, how do you explain this? How do you explain that loss? If that was really true. And there will be instantaneously this challenge to the promise, to the truth, to the blessing of God. This is, this is the human experience, is being caught between God's intention for us to live from this blessing, the evil one, the devil, trying to lie, trying to call into question that which with God has already authoritatively said is true. You tracking with me how significant that is? I mean, that's its own, I mean, for a lot of us, you could just stop right there, take that, I mean, that is, that's the, that's the whole thing, that's the whole thing. We're coming back all the time trying to say, this is the work that we're trying to do, is to participate. <laughs> that's really all we're trying to do, is trying to participate. We're trying to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and bring us into the light of that blessing, and to cast out those lies, and to live as beloved ones who God is delights in, and then live in accordance with that, Okay? That really is the foundation. This is going to be now where it gets heavier, and, and I'm going to apologize even before I get into this, because in the first week, I did not honor enough the fact that when we're talking about some of the heaviness of the social construct of race, um, um, some of what had that heaviness, there's, in fact, many of you shared this with me, there's kind of a trauma that comes with talking about the heaviness of race on different sides. For those who have never been exposed to it, it's its, its own kind of trauma of not realizing some of the sins of kind of what we've inherited and the realities what we're in. For many of you who have been marginalized or oppressed or beat up by this, it's re-traumatizing to talk about some of these things. And um, I, I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to be flippant in any kind of a way. We want to walk with you. If, there's, if we're opening up old wounds, you know, our elders, our staff are available. We're going to have you know, time of worship and communion here at the end. So I, I, I acknowledge the heaviness and even some of the re-traumatizing. So I want to be really sensitive um, but I also do believe strongly that if we're awakened by the Spirit, we have to see the way some of this is working. So how do we look at something like the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of the devil, and from there ask, what does that have to do with the social construct of race? Hopefully you're beginning to kind of already make the jump there. But if this is the core of God's intent, is that every person would live from this place a blessing, 
that every person would live with a deep sense of knowledge that they are God's daughter, son, beloved one, the one that is delighted in. If that's God's primary intention, and if the devil's intention is to lie, to steal, to kill, to destroy, to do anything, then one of the most brilliantly dark schemes that has ever been created is to create a whole system of classifying people and saying that some people, based on the lighterness of their skin, can claim that promise of being fully human, and that other people who have darker skin don't get to fully claim that promise, that they're inherently told through this narrative of racial difference, through this lie, that they're less valuable, less than. Right? It's, it's right in the initial fight. This is, this is the battle. God trying to help each person claim their belovedness, the evil one trying to create this lie. And when it turns into a system of classification, um, it just creates profound trouble in our society. And so one of, these, one of these kind of common language kind of things we're going to be trying to do here at River City is talk about common history. We have to understand that we're, we're not starting at ground zero. We've inherited kind of a history that impacts how we follow Jesus. And so let me just kind of illustrate things we probably already know, but just showing again how this lie has played a profound role in shaping who we are as a country. Uh, let's start when we look at some of the condition of the native folks in our country, indigenous folks, right? Um, uh, if you weren't here for this week, we had a native theologian named Mark Charles come in last year, and he expanded much more on what I'm going to do in the 30 seconds here. But he talked about the importance of the doctrine of discovery in America's development. All the way back in the 15th, 16th century, there were these papal bulls that created a law called the doctrine of discovery that is still part of our judicial system. The Supreme Court still references the doctrine of discovery when trying cases of things that where native folks have lost their land. But the doctrine of discovery at its core, I mean, you can look, you can look this up online. This is everywhere. The doctrine of discovery at its core said that white European Christians could discover new lands, and if there were inhabitants there, um, and they would not acquiesce to Christianity, that they were allowed to enslave them or even kill them. That's what the Doctrine of Discovery said, that there was this kind of God-ordained authority given to white Europeans where they could discover and take over and kill, if necessary, the people who were here. Right? That's the only way you could ever make a case for what happened in this country, where millions of people lived, and then a much smaller number of that came, but they were more powerful in terms of artillery and all that, and they took it over. And the only way that 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 doctrine could be sustained was through this lie, through this narrative, that Native people were less valuable than whites. Hard stuff to hear. But we already gave one example of that two weeks ago when we looked in the Declaration of Independence, when it actually says in the Declaration that Native people are merciless savages. But here's just like an everyday example of this. Dr. Lee Beverly Tatum, uh, if you want to go deeper, this series is still going to go for a few more weeks, but if you decide you want to go deeper, one of the books I would really recommend, and it's a book on um, cultural identity, Why Are All the Black Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And it's a book on um, cultural identity development, racial cultural identity development. It particularly looks at identity development for black folks, although it really tries to pull in people of color of all different kind of backgrounds. It's a lot of reasons why it's what inspired me to write White Awake to do kind of a corollary for white folks to it. Um, but she tells a couple stories around this one. And the native one, she tells a story. One of them, she was the president of Spelman. And uh, so one of her graduate students, she had them do a project. So what this graduate student wanted to do was see how young children thought of native people, like what images were in the native people. So she got permission to do um, a study at a preschool. And she just did three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And so she did an exercise with coloring and said, what do you think of when you think of native people? Not one of the kids had ever heard the term native people. So then she said indigenous. What do you think of indigenous? Not one of the kids ever heard of that. So she had no choice. She said, what do you think of when you think of Indians that used to live here or that still live here in the United States of America? 
And what she found is that every single kid drew something that was depicted with violence, either a mohawk, uh, I'm sorry, not a, mohawk, um, a tomahawk, a spear, bow and arrow, um, knife. Every single kid, without exception, drew a picture of something violent. And this grad student, her conclusion was, not one of these kids have ever actually met a Native person, but they've already been indoctrinated that when they think of somebody who is Native to this country, they immediately and exclusively associate it with violence. I hope you can see the significance, why that's deeply spiritual. They didn't pick that up from God, right? They picked that up from a socialized message where there's a lie that's communicated generation to generation that the people who used to live here um, and who we've almost now rendered invisible um, were violent and dangerous, and we were somehow doing a God. I mean, it's actually an an extension of the doctrine of discovery. We were almost doing a service for God to remove those dangerous people from this place. You see how this lie is powerful when you start saying some people are more valuable and more worthy of protection, other people are dangerous. Um, two weeks ago as well, we talked about um, the way that the narrative of difference was used to create the institution of slavery and how um, the only way white Christians were able to justify slavery was by being told that white people are superior to black people and that black people were less human than white people. It's what eventually led to the language of three-fifths human, that clause that's in the Constitution um, that was changed by an amendment, but it was originally in the Constitution that black people were three-fifths human. <sighs> just a, I mean, it's just the clearest form of a lie, right? That there's a standard of human that's five-fifths, and that certain that black people were considered three fifths of that. Dr. Tatum tells a story. I mean, those of you who are black or part black, I, you 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 already know this. You don't need to be told this. I think this is for the benefit of others to to hear these kind of things. But there's these stories every day where this lie gets continued to be um, perpetuated and expressed. Um, this is just in, in in some ways it's small compared to what so many people exp- go go to go through. But Dr. Tatum uses this. She said stuff like this happens all the time. But she talked about a conference she had just spoke at, and she presented on cultural identity development. And she said this professional white man came up to her afterwards, and he said, man, that was good. You are so articulate. And he paused for a moment, and he meant this as a compliment. He said, if I would have closed my eyes, I could have sworn you were white. And I, I'm not even trying to put that guy on blast, because one of the worst things to do is to say there's these bad people who say bad things, and we're all exempt from that. The point of that is deeper, is to show that there's this narrative that's so profound, we don't even realize the way that it shaped us, right? And so what he, what he meant as a compliment was totally distorted by the lie, right? Because in his mind, it's like the height of articulation and intelligence and ability to put on a great thing is some of the white professionals I've seen do this, and you're just as good as them, right? So he's trying to affirm her that she's just as good as the white people, as the white standard that he has, without realizing the way that this lie has continued to be perpetuated and expressed. All right, we could... We could we could continue to go through this. I think a lot of the modern, current rhetoric around immigration, we're seeing this. It really is, there are just these historical things where it's like, it's just crazy. I I probably shouldn't try to do something that's even moderately funny because the subject is matter so heavy, but I remember Richard Twist, the wonderful native theologian who died way sooner than they should have, but, you know, he spoke here at River City, and I think he even said this on that Sunday. He said, he said, as native people, we should have taken immigration far more seriously. We should have not let any illegal immigrants come in. Uh, that would have really saved a lot of the... Um, but you see this a lot with the kind of war between kind of, kind of whiteness and kind of Mexican-Americans in particular, where such a huge section of our country used to be inhabited by them, but then we pushed our border back and 
you know, talked about how they're a mongrel race and how we needed to be aware of the ways that they would interbreed with white people. That was the narrative that allowed for these wars to happen. And I realize wars will always happen. It's this narrative. It's this lie that was told that continues to be perpetuated in our modern society in the way that we talk about this. We could do this. I'm not trying to be an authority on all these things, but I think if you don't know about the model minority myth that's often used to wedge Asian Americans, ask if you've got an Asian American friend that's patient enough to explain that. I think that that fits within this thing as well. I mean, we could really go on and on. Um, and, and just kind of last word on this. Um, again, I'm trying to tie this back. There's a lot of ways in the scriptures that we can look at this, but this Matthew 3, Matthew 4 narrative is one of the ways to look at this, where, we again, we see that what God is trying to do is to affirm belovedness, son, daughter, child, delight, being pleased, and that there's this lie, there's this lie that the devil will do literally anything, the, the, the evil one will still kill and destroy whatever way, anything that can put a question of that value into a person's mind, the evil one will do. And race is not the only way that happens, there's lots of other ways, but Brandon and I were talking about this this week. Whichever oppressive kind of thing you look at where this happens, race is always in the picture with that one. Like when you add race to whatever your other one is, it really creates this challenge to be able to fully embrace the blessing of God. And as important it is to understand this at an individual level, and it is, and none of us are exempt. We've all heard this lie. We've all been shaped by this lie. This is, you can't even understand systemic racism without understanding this lie, right? What happens if you build a school with the best of intentions, but within the building of that school, the lie is unchallenged? That lighter-skinned kids are more intelligent, more capable, are harder workers, and that darker-skinned students are less capable, less intelligent, less likely to do well? If that lie even a little bit lives unchallenged in a school, what happens? It's not even just an individual thing anymore, is it? When you build a neighborhood and the lie is unchallenged at any level that those who are lighter skinned are better residents and create more access and attractiveness for the neighborhood and are more worthy of being protected and that darker skinned residents are some kind of a threat, are more dangerous, will take down the property value at any level. If even the smallest ways that's left unchallenged, you've got profound sin coursing through that entire system. If you organize a police system, a justice system, and say darker-skinned people are more dangerous, are a greater threat, lighter-skinned people are less of a threat and need to be protected, you can take the most sincere people and put them in that system, and that lie becomes part of what's shaping how they work on a day-to-day basis. All right, so I realize it's heavy, it's heavy, it's heavy. You may even not even agree with me, which I'm okay with that, but... Um, well, actually, I'm not really. I think this is biblical, um, that this is what God is trying to extract. So I take that back. I don't, if you're allowed to disagree with me, but I think this is, this is what, what the intentions of God is. Um, so heavy that I'm convinced you can't really be awake without Jesus. I mean, not only do you need the Spirit of God to see it, but you need the Spirit of God to give you the courage to go into these things. Whichever side you're on, on the more marginalized, oppressed side or on the blinded, kind of privileged side, um, wherever we're at on that spectrum, not only do we need Jesus to help see us, we need Jesus to, have the, to help us give us the courage for this. And I want to share, this is the last story kind of going into communion. I hope, I hope this goes as deep as it did for you. We, we, this past Sunday um, after church, we had our community group leaders meeting. 
And so um, within our community group leaders, we're talking about this kind of gospel issue of the narrative of racial difference versus the doctrine of the Imago Dei and how does this affect the way that community group leaders lead within their spaces. And Jason shared a story um, that he read in the Emotionally Healthy Leader that originally comes back to a book from um, Parker Palmer. Um, uh, but this is such a powerful idea. It's a simple, powerful idea. Um, Parker Palmer talks about, in Chicago, as we can kind of get this, I think maybe more than some, he talked about how in the Midwest, especially in the farming communities, how dangerous blizzards used to be, and um, that oftentimes a farmer in the midst of a blizzard would have to go attend to something or take care of something. But because of the snowy conditions, it would kind of blind them when they'd be out there. So they might only be feet away from the door, but they would get lost and confused out in the blizzard, and they would die of freezing, being frozen oftentimes just a few feet away from the door to the farm, couldn't find their way back in. So it was a sight issue. They couldn't find their way back in. And so this simple little um, idea that somebody came up with that kind of like changed things, a uh, uh, farmer started using a rope. And so they would tie a rope around their waist and then tie it back to the barn. And so then they'd go out into the blizzard, and they might not be able to see anything, but they'd attend whatever they need to attend. And then when they start getting confused that, you know, and start getting disoriented, they go, oh, wait, I've got this rope. I just need to follow the rope back home. And the rope would help them get back there. And I think, that, and in fact, Jason said this, and I think it's right on. He said, the doctrine, the Imago Dei, or I would add in Matthew 3, the blessing, the baptism blessing of being affirmed as children of God, that is home. And that message of the blessing, that message of the Imago Dei, is the rope that we have got to hold on to. Because as we awaken to the horrors, and it really is a horror, as we awaken in new ways to just how deep this goes, and I think it goes really deep, as we awaken to the ways in which the very fabric of our society is shaped by this narrative of racial difference, by this lie that some people are more valuable and some that are less valuable, I'm not saying that's what you ideologically subscribe to. In fact, I hope nobody does. But that's not the point is to just say, I disagree with it. The point is to say that that lie has been become part of the fabric of how we function in that I'm not just trying to reject it in ideology. I'm trying to say, I've got to, we've got to dismantle this thing together. We've got to learn how to see it. We've got to learn to see the demonic powers behind it. And we've got to learn how to dismantle it. And the only way you can have the guts and the courage and the strength and the capacity to go out into that storm is to have that rope tied around your waist. And if there's not a home to come back to, if there's not that Matthew 3 vision for your life where you're coming back to the Father who says, you're my daughter, don't forget that as you do this, no matter how many horrible things you've said or how many things you've said that you should think of yourself as better, no matter which versions of it you've heard, the truth that brings you home is you're my daughter. You're my son. You are my beloved. I delight in you. That's the only way home. It's the only way to find our way back through this storm. And that's why I'm just convinced, I'm, I'm suspicious of those who don't deal with this stuff because I think it's a misappropriation of their faith in Jesus, but I'm suspicious of justice movements that don't have Christ in the center, not because it's a religious thing at the end of the day, but because there's no home base. There's no home base. Um, it's, it's, I, I, I agree that there's a system, an evil system that has to be deconstructed, but something has got to be constructed in this place. There's got to be a home base that we come back to, and that's found in this doctrine, the Imago Dei. It's found in this blessing of the belovedness. And I hope that as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, it positions you to kind of step into that space in a different kind of a way. There's a repentance piece, and we'll do a week on repentance at some point. But the shorthand of this, repent, what I'm not asking people to do is, well, we should repent if we actually did something bad. But, but it's not so much of an accounting of bad things we've done. I think it's a repentance of saying, Lord, this is the system I grew up in. This is the ideology I have been immersed under my whole life. Um, 
I may not even see it fully. That's, that's its own thing to repent for, is I don't even see it fully. Lord, help me to see, right? Uh, we come, but then we come and claim the birthright that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That blessing, in fact, Nicole, is that, is it, can, could you pull up um, Matthew 3.16, that last um, part of the baptism? And I just want to let these words sit, sit in us. We know John 3.16 is the famous one. I, I like Matthew 3.16 just as much. That as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of that water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. This is the home base. This is what communion represents. This is Jesus Christ saying, I died for your sin. I defeated evil. I've resurrected. Evil is real, but I have won. I am ultimately victorious. When you are connected to me by faith, you are victorious. You, this is ours to claim. The heavens opening, the Spirit of God coming up, uh, uh, upon us, the alightingness that comes from being God's beloved, God's son, God's daughter. This is this is what we carry the rope back to. This is how we find our way back home. And when we receive of this gift of communion, it's what it is. It's a gift. There's a heaviness because we realize the brokenness of society, but there's a lightness as well that comes because it's this gift that brings us back home. It gives us a foundation to stand from. It gives us the big picture of what Jesus Christ is doing. And so I'm going to kind of just lead us here in a little bit of a reflective prayer. And when you're ready, there will be a pair of um, folks from the body at each side, one, one youth, one adult. And when you're ready, you can come uh, and receive of this gift. And um, they'll give you a piece of the bread, and they'll, you can dip it in the cup. There'll be an elder, too, that's available for prayer during this time if you need to just have a prayer blessed over you. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's just kind of do this in the spirit of prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray together. And I just kind of want to pray as we get ready for this. Dear God, uh, um, I really am praying these last few minutes that just your spirit will be alive and active in this place, that whatever's happening in us, if we're feeling defensive, if we're feeling confused, if we're feeling overwhelmed, if we're feeling re-triggered or re-traumatized, um, I apologize for whatever parts of my humanity are contributing to this. I pray that what comes across clearly is your call to salvation and faith and belovedness your constant reckoning, your constant warning of the evil one that lies and challenges that blessing, that deceives, that would do anything to get us to question that which is true in you, that which you've already authoritatively spoken. You never change what you say. It's the lies that contort and distort and confuse and take us into the blizzard, away from home, where we get pummeled by the things of this world, the, the very real and painful messages that are out there that challenge the authoritative blessing you've already spoken over us. God, I pray that no matter what degree of sin we've committed or what degree of sin is we've committed against us, that we can trust that your death and resurrection is bigger than it all, that the power that raised you from the dead really can raise us from the dead too, that we can be forgiven and made whole and made free, that we can then become ambassadors who join you in this fight of love, bearing witness to the God who authoritatively speaks his blessing over us all. God, I thank you for this gift of communion. I thank you that you told us to do it regularly and in remembrance of you. May we reflect on your body that was broken, your blood that was spilled so that by your stripes we would be healed. We need to be healed, God, and we need to be part of the healing of the society. May we come to you in a spirit of openness and humility, a spirit of readiness, and even expectation. Move in this place, God, as we receive your gift of communion.
nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Only in your presence, Lord. Yeah. Holy Spirit, you are well. Church. 